When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to More Than a Muse. I'm Stani. And I am Sadie. And I am so excited for today's episode and the artist we're covering today. Same. I actually, I was like creating the artwork for the episode cover mm-hmm. yesterday. And so I like Googled her to grab a picture. Yes. And then stuff started coming up that she's like has done and is involved in and everything. And I was like, Holy crap. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Talk about accomplished. Exactly. And I feel like we've covered some people that seem to live so many lives in their lifetime. And that's how I felt researching her and like reading everything that she did. I mean, it was all artistic things, but they spanned just so many things. Like for a while she was doing music, but then the thing that she's most known for is her writing her memoir her poetry and yeah she's accomplished so many things like she got like the medal of freedom from obama and she read a poem at bill clinton's inauguration when he became a president so like just almost like the very definition of accomplished i don't know if you can have a more accomplished life than this basically seriously but it was someone that i had not known a lot about and that's a fun thing about the podcast is that sometimes we do artists that no one's heard of or we do people that like you maybe don't realize you've heard of which I think is this situation where even Mm -hmm. looking through and reading all of her quotes I was like oh duh these quotes like (laughs) I didn't like make the connection that it was her who had said all of these things that are like all over my Pinterest board yeah like we even Uh, quoted her before like in graphics and stuff for the podcast or different episodes I'm pretty sure we've like mentioned oh this quote by Maya Angelou exactly so the reason why I finally I guess decided to cover Maya is because there I saw going around that there was like a new quarter design and she Mm. is the first black woman to be on the back of a quarter but her being on this quarter is a program called the American Women Quarters Program and it's a four-year program that celebrates the accomplishments and contributions made by women of the United States starting in 2022 this year and continuing through 2025 they are going to issue up to five new designs each year showcasing a amazing woman artist or just accomplished woman from the United States. Wow. And so this one depicts Maya Angelou with her arms uplifted and behind her is a bird in flight and a rising sun. And those are images that were inspired by her poetry and symbolic of the way that she lived her life. What I thought was cool is that the designer of the reverse of the quarter with her on it, her name is Emily Damstra. And it's like one of those jobs that you're like, oh yeah, that has to be somebody's job. Like who designs the quarters and our money? 
Disney. Yes. <laughs> and even who designs the front of the quarter. But a little bit about Emily is she earned an MFA in science illustration from the University of Michigan. And she has actually designed more than a dozen coins for the Royal Canadian Mint and a few postage stamps for the United Nations Postal Administration. And obviously she's done this quarter. So she does money for everyone in the world, not just the United States. That's crazy. I know. I thought that was such a cool potential job. But like I mentioned that every year with this like quarters, women's quarters program, they're issuing five new designs. And so the ones for 2022 are Maya Angelou, Dr. Sally Ride, who is a physicist, astronaut, and the first American woman in space. Wilma Mankiller, who was the first woman elected principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. Nina Otero Warren, who was a leader in the New Mexico suffrage movement and the first woman superintendent of Santa Fe Public Schools. And artist of the podcast, Anna Mae Wong, who was the first Chinese-American oh, film star in Hollywood. That. Mm-hmm. That's so and cool. I love how diverse it is, too. I know, right? And Emily designed the Maya Angelou one as well as the Anna Mae Wong one. So I don't know when that Anna Mae Wong will be like issued or if it already is, but thought that was super That's cool. That's so cool. Then we can all start a More Than a Muse quarter collection. Exactly. And they also <laughs> yeah. have announced the 2023 names. And honestly, this gave me just a couple of them. Where I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to cover them on the podcast. So the five that they are doing in next year is Bessie Coleman, who was the first African-American and first Native American woman pilot. Wow. Edith Kenna Cole, who is an indigenous Hawaiian composer and custodian of Native culture and traditions, which I think sounds amazing. I'm like, ooh, I want to learn yeah. about the Hawaiian composer. So future episode coming. Eleanor Roosevelt, who, you know, first lady and author. Jovita Idar, which is a Mexican-American journalist, activist, teacher, and suffragist. And then Maria Tallchief, who is America's first prima ballerina. Wow. So again, very diverse and just really cool, amazing women that are being highlighted through the American Women Quarters program. That is so cool. Mm -hmm. What an amazing program. I know. And I loved that, you know, now we'll have two people that we've featured on Mm -hmm. the podcast from this year's quarter collection. I loved it. That's so cool. Yes. So now jumping into Maya Angelou's life. Wow. Is there so much that (laughs) um, (laughs) you could learn about her life? In preparation for this episode, I actually read her most popular book, I guess most popular memoir, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. I'm currently Mm -hmm. like two thirds of the way through it. And honestly... This is like a new practice is I'm really trying to enjoy the art of who I'm covering. And it really has just made me fall in love with her. For one thing, like her writing style is just absolutely beautiful. But the way that she, you know, tells her story, you just feel very connected with her and like all of the things she had to endure at even just such a young age. I'll talk about it more. But then this first memoir is like just from her as like a young child to her being about 16, 17. So just her growing up. But for a brief overview to start with Maya Angelou, she was born Marguerite Annie Johnson, April 4th of 1928. And she was an American memoir popular poet and civil rights activist. She published seven autobiographies, three books of essays, several books of poetry, and is credited with the list of plays, movies, and television shows spanning over 50 
years. She received dozens of awards and more than 50 honorary degrees. Angelo is best known for her series of seven autobiographies, which focus on her childhood and early adult experience. The first, like I mentioned, I Know Why the Cage Birds Sings, is the book that brought her international recognition and acclaim. Before we like give the details of her life, I wanted to mention this poem that she wrote, Still I Rise. And on YouTube last night, I watched a video of her performing this poem and it was just so beautiful. And I mean, I don't need to read the whole poem, but I did want to read this last stanza of it well uh, no I'm gonna read the whole thing if that's cool it's, Do it. it's such a yeah. good poem and I feel like I've heard bits and pieces but it's yes. very popular that's what but I said yeah, I know you've really heard pieces amazing. of it and mm-hmm. obviously like just go watch her recite it on YouTube but I think it deserves to be read so Still I Rise by Maya Angelou. You may write down in history with your bitter twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Cause I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides, just like hope springing high, still I'll rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries? Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't you take it awful hard, cause I laugh like I've got gold mines, digging in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words, you may cut me with your eyes, you may kill me with your hatefulness, but still, like air, I'll rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise that I dance like I've got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs? Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean, leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a break that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. So good. that. Yes. Like, I don't know. What a great way, I guess, to start the life of her by reading, I dare say, her most famous poem or one of her most famous poems. It's just incredible. And she's incredible. And from reading her memoir and watching a couple interviews from her and learning about her, I've fallen in love with her. So... I hope that you fall in love with her too by the end of this podcast episode. On to her life. So like I mentioned, she was born Margaret Annie Johnson and she was born in St. Louis, Missouri on April 4th, 1928. And she was the second child of Bailey Johnson, who was a doorman and Vivian Baxter Johnson. And she was actually a nurse and a card dealer. Angelo's older brother, Bailey Jr., nicknamed Marguerite Maya and it was derived from my or Maya's sister. And so eventually they just started calling her Maya. Cute. I know. (laughs) When Angelo was three and her brother four, their parents' marriage ended and their father actually sent them to Stamps, Arkansas alone by train, which is crazy because three and four. But he sent them to live with her, their paternal grandmother, Annie Henderson. And that is like a lot of what the memoir focuses on is, you know, them 
kind of being tossed around as kids between their parents and her paternal grandmother. And then this quote says, in an astonishing exception to the harsh economics of African-Americans at the time, Angelo's grandmother prospered financially during the Great Depression and World War II because the general store she owned sold needed basic commodities and because she made wise and honest investments. In the memoir, it like talks about like she obviously could tell that the Great Depression was going on and they had to like make changes to the way that they ran the store during that time. But yeah, because, you know, she was like one of the only general stores in that area, like they needed her. So they were actually able to be okay during that time. It's actually like so weird what ended up working in the Great Depression Uh and what didn't. Like my great grandfather owned a sheep farm and he had like five kids and because and they were all sons, but because the fleece was so important to the war, none of them got sent into the military. Oh, really? Yeah. Because they they, needed so well because they needed it so badly. And they weren't like trying to be selfish about it or anything. Like I'm sure her grandmother wasn't either, but like it was just such a hot commodity that they ended up like doing really well in the Great Depression. Isn't that weird? That that is weird. Yeah. Four years later, when Angela was seven and her brother Bailey was eight, the children's father came to Stamps without warning and returned them to their mother's care in St. Louis. And then at the age of... Okay, trigger warning real quick if you want to, like, skip the next 30 seconds. Trigger warning for, like, sexual assault. Anyways, Mm -hmm. at the age of eight, while living with her mother... Angela was actually sexually abused and raped by her mother's boyfriend, a Mm. man named Freeman. And she told her brother, who told the rest of the family, um, Freeman was found guilty, but actually was only jailed for one day. What? Um, Yes. But then four days after he was released, uh, he was murdered, probably by Angelo's uncles. Oh, okay. So... Um, I'm not going to lie that like, I mean, obviously it was very upsetting reading that in the memoir, but it was so interesting how she told her own story as like a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old, you know, and it was, it's heartbreaking. But what was so sad is that after this happened, she became mute for almost five years, believing, quote, that I thought my voice killed him. I killed that man because I told his name and then I thought I would never speak again because my voice would kill anyone. There's like this moment in the memoir where she's with her, not the paternal grandma that she lived with for some time in Arkansas, but with I think her other grandma and someone comes into the store and is like, oh, did you hear he died? And like everyone knew that it was Maya Angelou's uncles who who had done this. And there's like that moment. And, and it's like I <laughs> I put it in my head like, oh, my gosh, she's eight. You know, like she doesn't have yeah. the, the capacity to process things or even at all, obviously. And so in her head, she was like, I'm it's my fault. I'm responsible and so, yeah, she was mute for five years. Well, especially because, like, at that young, you don't have, like, you're not vindictive. No. You're not vengeful. So it's like nothing in her was, like, wishing him harm. He did something bad and, like, but it doesn't mean that she wanted him to die. You're too little. You're like, too little to understand. For- yeah. Yeah. That is crazy. It, it is. According to Maria and Gillespie, who is actually, if I mention Gillespie moving forward, she and like her colleagues wrote a biography about Angelo. And so there's a lot of, you know, 
things I'll reference that she said. <clears throat> but she said that it was during this period of silence when Angelo developed her extraordinary memory, her love for books and literature, and her ability to listen and observe the world around her. Which, I guess if you're not speaking, yes. Yeah. But shortly after Freeman's murder, when Angelo was eight and her brother was nine, her and her brother were actually sent back to their grandmother in Arkansas, where she attended the Lafayette County Training School in Samps. Angelo actually credits a teacher and a friend of her family named Mrs. Bertha Flowers with helping her speak again. And she challenged her by saying, quote, you do not love poetry, not until you speak it. And that was a very nice chapter in the in the memoir where she talks about how obviously like her grandmother had kind of set up for this Mrs. Flowers to come and invite her over and she like made her cookies and lemonade and talked to her you know about sure like reading is great but like the quote said you do not love poetry not until you speak it and Flowers actually also introduced her to authors such as Charles Dickens, William Shakespeare, Edgar Allan Poe and Georgia Douglas Johnson and James Weldon Johnson authors who would go on to influence her and her career as well as black female artists like Frances Harper and Spencer and Jesse Fawcett which are other artists that I have now added to the lineup of people to cover for more Mm -hmm. than a muse. But then when she was 14 and her brother was 15, she and her brother moved in once again with their mother who had since moved to Oakland, California. At the age of 16, she actually became the first female streetcar conductor in San Francisco. I guess she wanted the job badly because she loved the uniforms of the operators and her mom like would refer to it as her dream job. And so her mother encouraged her to pursue the position, but like warned her that she would need to like work really hard and like be better than everyone else. But then in 2014, like years obviously later, not that long ago, she actually received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Conference of Minority Transportation Officials as part of a session build women who move the nation so i thought that's that but then three weeks after she completed school at the age of 17 she gave birth to her son clyde who and she later changed his name to guy johnson so she got pregnant when she was 16 i was watching an interview that she did with oprah which by the way her and oprah are very very good friends oprah like refers to Maya as her personal mentor and inspiration. And they were doing this like two part long episode together. I think it's from like 2014. Anyways, but she talked about how first off, just so unfortunate that like I think it was like the first time that she had sex with this guy and maybe even ever they got pregnant and then her mom was kind of like well do you love him and she's like no and then the mom pretty much said well no use ruining three lives and said we'll have this baby and don't worry about it so i don't know if like the guy ever was super involved with the baby or how that happened but she talked about in that interview about how her mom didn't make her feel bad about that and was just like all right this is the situation let's love this baby which yeah, is obviously that's honestly like the best kind part. of a beautiful response to just yes. be like okay well if you don't love him like we're not gonna throw this on him too like we'll just handle it we'll just handle it mm-hmm. and I think that ended up being her only son and later talked about how he was one of the biggest blessings of her life. Moving on to her early adulthood and the beginning of her career. So in 1951, she married Tosh Angelos, who was a Greek electrician, 
former sailor and aspiring musician. Despite the condemnation of interracial marriage at the time and the disapproval of her mom, they did get married and then she took modern dance classes during this time, met dancers and choreographers Alvin Ailey and Ruth Beckerford, and then Ailey and Angelo actually formed a dance team and they called themselves Al and Rita and performed modern dance at fraternal black organizations throughout San Francisco, but that never really became successful. So her, her Mm -hmm. new husband and her son actually moved to New York City so she could study African dance with Trinidadian dancer Pearl Primus, which is someone else. I'm like, who is that? That's why I love doing research for just artistic people because they have artistic friends and they're all people I haven't heard of. And so now it's like, oh, more content. Amazing. Or more people to learn about, I guess I should say. But they returned to San Francisco like a year later. That marriage actually ended up ending in 1954, just three years after. And she danced professionally in clubs around San Francisco, including the nightclub called The Purple Onion, where she sang and danced to Calypso music. Up to that point, she went by the name Marguerite Johnson or Rita, but at the strong suggestion of her managers and supporters at the Purple Onion, she changed her professional name to Maya Angelou, which was her nickname and then her former married surname. It was a distinctive Mm -hmm. name that set her apart and captured the feel of her Calypso dance performances. And then during 1954 and 55, she actually toured Europe with the production of the opera Porgy and Bess, and she began her practice of learning the language of every country she visited and in a few years she gained proficiency in several languages which is just you know of course she did (laughs) yes exactly of course she did and then 1957 writing on the popularity of calypso angelo recorded her first album miss calypso which was actually reissued as a cd in 1996 and then she appeared in an off-broadway review that was inspired by the 1957 film calypso heat wave in which she sang and performed her own compositions so again talk about multiple lifetimes is that she started out as a singer and a dancer and toured europe and made an album and was on an off-broadway show in new york and perform and sang her own compositions in this off-broadway show and like this is all before what she's now the most known for which is her books and her poems so i just love it in 1959, she met the novelist John Oliver Killens and moved to New York kind of on his recommendation to concentrate actually on her writing career. She joined the Harlem Writers Guild, where she met several African-American authors, including John Henrik Clark, Rosa Guy, Paul Marshall, and Julian Mayfield, and and she was actually published for the very first time. But then in 1960, after meeting civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. and hearing him speak, she and Killens organized the legendary Cabaret of Freedom to benefit the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And she was named the SCLC's Southern Christian Leadership Conference Northern Coordinator. According to a scholar, Lyman B. Hagen, her contributions to civil rights as a fundraiser and SCLC organizer were successful and eminently effective. So very significant that, you know, meeting Martin Luther King Jr. and then helping in the civil rights movement. But then it's still in this time she is performing. In 1961, she performed in Jean Genet's play called The Blacks. Also in 1961, she met South African freedom fighter Vusami Make. They never officially married, but I guess there was something there because her and her son, they actually moved with him to Cairo, Egypt, where Angela worked as an associate editor at the weekly English newspaper, The Arab Observer. So again, multiple lives here because now she's in Egypt 
as an editor for a magazine. In 1962, her relationship with Make ended, but she and Guy moved to Accra, Ghana, so that he could attend college there. I guess at that time he was seriously injured in an automobile accident, but they still remained in Accra for his recovery and ended up staying there until 1965. And during her their time in Ghana, she became an administrator at the University of Ghana and was active in the African-American expatriate community. She was a feature editor for the African Review, a freelance writer for the Ghanaian Times, and wrote and broadcast for Radio Ghana and worked and performed for Ghana's National Theater. She performed in a revival of The Blacks, which is something that she performed back in 1961 in Geneva and Berlin. So, brief moment in Egypt. Then she's in Ghana where she works at universities is an editor for pretty much it feels like all their radio and magazine shows. And then she performed in a revival of that play in Geneva and Berlin. So I'm going to say it again, just multiple lives. During her time in Ghana, she actually became close friends with Malcolm X during his visit in the early 1960s. But then in 1965, she returned to help him build a new civil rights organization, the Organization of Afro-American Unity, but he was actually assassinated shortly afterward. She was devastated, of course, and she ended up joining her brother in Hawaii, where she resumed her singing career. I don't think she was there that long, because then shortly after, I think within a year or two, she moved back to LA to focus on her writing career, and then she also worked as a market researcher in Watts, And she also acted in and wrote plays and returned to New York in 1967. In 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. asked Angelo to actually organize a march. She agreed, but it ended up being postponed. And then he was assassinated actually on her 40th birthday on April 4th. This is a quote. It said, if 1968 was a year of great pain, loss, and sadness, it was also the year when America first witnessed the breadth and depth of Maya Angelou's spirit and creative genius despite having almost no experience she wrote produced and narrated blacks blues black a 10-part series of documentaries about the connection between blues music and black americans african heritage and what angelo called the africanisms still current in the u.s for the national educational television which was like the precursor of pbs so wow crazy and then in 1968 inspired At a dinner party that she attended with a good friend of hers named James Baldwin, a cartoonist named Jules Pfeiffer and his wife, Judy, they actually, and challenged by Random House editor Robert Loomis, she ended up writing her first autobiography, I Know Why the Cage Burst Sing, that was published in 1969. We're going to take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists. Okay, well, for today's spotlight, I have found Vanita Moore and her instagram tag or bio whatever it's called at what is the username there we go that's the word i'm looking oh for i could not think of it um <laughs> it's artsy a-r-t-s-y-y vanita vi v-i-n-i-t-a and she is an 18 year old painter in india and i absolutely love i think it's a lot of stuff for books and like beautiful butterfly bookmarks that i Ooh. Mm-hmm, they're so beautiful yeah they're pop-up bookmarks that are butterflies that she makes and paints and they're beautiful she does a lot of like reading trackers bookmarks things for books that are just adorable but then also a lot of like just general paintings a lot of like landscapes 
oceans and yeah they're beautiful but i love the pop-up butterfly bookmarks the most they're they're beautiful so cute yeah i love that i love it too i don't think she has like an etsy shop but it's in her bio it says like to dm for collaborations pr or under commissions so cool she could reach out to her but yeah the prettiest bookmarks i've ever seen definitely these are gorgeous Mm -hmm. i have joy laforme i think is how you would say her name or laforme okay i don't know so it's just joy laforme Uh, her last name is spelled l-a-f-o-r-m-e Mm. And she's an illustrator. She's actually repped by an agency. And it's gorgeous. I'm obsessed with this. <laughs> yeah. She's a former New Yorker. And I feel like you can tell. Like, it's everywhere this, in her stuff. Like, it's first just... one with the music hall Radio City. I know. I love. The little taxi cabs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, like, the one below it with, like, the little taxi cab in the snow and the yes. little townhouse. I, I just love. Just so cute. Yeah, me too so great yes so she's done like a lot of different stuff she's done album covers for like different christmas albums or like all sorts of things but honestly like her just her little illustrations of the city with like the little taxi cabs and the little town homes mm-hmm. and fall leaves just the cutest stuff ever yeah, so I adorable it. i just i can't get over this first one the i know they're magical for the rockets is what she did like happening opening day in my all-time phase the rockets officially the holidays on her website she actually has puzzles <gasps> which sounds so this would perfect. be the cutest for puzzles <laughs> right <laughs> she has prints and then she also has paint by number kits <gasps> which also sounds so fun oh no <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but yeah like her prints are so cute like Oh my gosh, they're just perfect. And then I feel like this would make the perfect gift of like a little puzzle if you have someone who loves puzzles. Or paint by numbers. Oh, this is so random. Do you know what? I went to, there's a bookshop like right across from where I live, which means we go over there all the time just to browse, Jordan and I. And Uh this is not the same thing, but it was just a cute little thing that I was like, this could be the perfect gift for like the perfect person. But it was a Pride and Prejudice. It was called Matchmaker and it was a memory game with like the cute with the cutest illustrations of characters from Pride and Prejudice and how fun I just loved it so I feel like those are always like really fun things for you know for gifts for things like that where it's like they're cute and they're fun but like one of those things that you probably wouldn't buy for yourself you know what I mean (laughs) no that makes sense love that please just go look at her stuff especially for the holidays Uh I just feel like it just screams like Christmas and like it really does yeah and it's magical cute little stuff all right now back to the show i want to give a little bit more details about specifically that book because it ended up changing everything kind of for her Mm-hmm. I Know Why the Cage Bird Sing is the 1969 autobiography describing, like I mentioned, the young and early years of her life. And then it's the first in a seven volume series coming of age story that illustrates how strength of character and a love of literature helped her overcome like racism and trauma. And like I mentioned, the book begins when the three year old Maya 
are sent to Stamps, Arkansas to live with their grandmother and ends when Maya becomes a mother at the age of 16. She uses her autobiography to explore subjects such as identity, rape, racism, and literacy. She also writes in new ways about women's lives in a male-dominated society. Maya, the younger version of Angelo, and the book's central character has been called a symbolic character for every black girl growing up in America. And I mentioned that like she was originally inspired at a dinner party or I guess challenge to do this, but I found a little bit more about that story. So she was very deeply depressed in the months following King's assassination. But to lift her spirits, Baldwin brought her to a dinner party at the home of, like I mentioned, the cartoonist Jules Pfeiffer and his wife, Judy. The guests began actually telling stories of their childhoods and Angelo's stories impressed Judy Pfeiffer. The next day, she called Robert Loomis at Random House, who was a editor, actually, and who became Angelo's editor throughout her very long writing career until actually he retired in 2011 and told him that he ought to get this woman to write a book. At first, Angelo refused since she thought to herself as a poet and playwright. According to Angelo, Baldwin had a covert hand in getting her to write the book and advised Loomis to use a little reverse psychology and reported that Loomis tricked her into it by daring her. It's just as well, he said, <laughs> because to write an autobiography as literature is just about impossible. And then Angela was unable to resist a challenge, so, so she began writing Caged Bird after closeting herself in London and it took her two years actually to write it and so I loved that that it was like reverse psychology of him being like oh well there's no way you could write an autobiography as a literature like there's you could never do that and then that like stubbornness in her was like "Mm, watch me actually I think that's my goal now that is so funny Uh uh-huh and then and what I thought was cool so this is where the title comes from when selecting a title Angela returned to Paul Lawrence Dunbar an African-American poet whose work she had admired for years and she actually had credited him along with Shakespeare with forming her writing ambition the title of the book comes from the third stanza of Dunbar's poem sympathy and I'm gonna read that stanza which says, I know why the caged bird sings, ah me, when his wing is bruised and his bosom sore, when he beats his bars and would be free. It is not a carol of joy or glee, but a prayer that he sends from his heart's deep core, but a plea that upward to heaven he flings, I know why the caged bird sings. And that's where the title comes from, which is beautiful. Love it was published in 1969 and she was hailed as a new kind of memoirist one of the very first african-american who was able to publicly discuss her personal life up to that point black women writers were marginalized to the point that they were unable to present themselves as a central character writer julian mayfield who called caged bird a work of art that eludes description has insisted that angelo's autobiography set a precedent for african-american autobiography as a whole and she also insisted that caged bird marked one of the first times that a black autobiography could write about blackness from the inside without apology or defense. Through the writing of her autobiography, Angelo became recognized as a respected spokesperson for black Americans and women. Cage Bird made her without a doubt America's most visible black woman autobiographer. It was actually nominated for a National Book Award in 1970, so just, you know, the year after, and it remained on the New York Times paperback bestseller list for two years. And since then, it has been used in educational settings from high schools to university, and the book has been celebrated for creating new literary avenues for the American memoir. So it's an incredible, incredible book. Like, I am was getting through it so quickly. Like I mentioned, I haven't technically finished it yet, but I'm 
planning mm-hmm. on finishing it even after I've done this episode, which I think I'm not just reading it for the episode. I was reading it. Well, that's why I originally picked it up, but I'm going to be finishing it because I have just loved, loved reading it. And I feel like I'm learning so much from her. And yeah, it's that's a great awesome. book. A little bit about her later life and just more that she did. Oh my gosh. Um, so <laughs> 1972, Angelo's Georgia, which was actually produced by a Swedish film company and filmed in Sweden, was the first produced screenplay by a black woman. And she actually also wrote the film's soundtrack, despite having very little edition input in the filming of the movie. I, I loved this quote that was like, she, Angelo, had accomplished more than many artists hoped to achieve in a lifetime. She worked as a composer, a writing for singer Roberta Flack, and composing movie scores. She wrote articles, short stories, TV scripts, documentaries, autobiographies, and poetry. She produced plays and was named visiting professor at several colleges and universities. She was quote, a reluctant actor and was nominated for a Tony Award in 1973 for her role in Look Away. As a theater director in 1988, she undertook a revival of Errol John's play Moon on the Rainbow Shawl at the Almedia Theater in London. In 1977, she appeared in a supporting role in the television miniseries Roots. She was given a multitude of awards during this period, including more than 30 honorary degrees from colleges, universities from all over the world. And then in the late 1970s, Angelo met Oprah Winfrey when she was actually just a TV anchor in Baltimore, Maryland, and then later would become Winfrey's close friend and mentor, which, by the way, I was talking to Jordan about what I was doing for this episode and mentioned that, you know, she was really good friends with Oprah. And he was like, oh, when did she meet Oprah this? And I was like, I can't remember. I don't really know a lot about Oprah. And he's like, you have a podcast about women in the arts and you don't know a lot about Oprah. And okay, future episode coming. I should know more about Oprah. (laughs) Yes, we should know more about Oprah. I remember watching her show when I was younger. Yes, but... same. My mom would always watch Oprah and I'd watch it with her. But mm-hmm. anyways, I, I was I was called out. I was like, Jordan, there's so much. There's so much that I have to do. I, I'll get to everyone. Don't worry. We've got years of this. <laughs> We've got years of this. Hold on. But she returned to the southern United States in 1981 because she felt that she had to come to terms with her past there. And despite having no bachelor's degree, she accepted the lifetime Reynolds professorship of American studies at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where she was one of the few full-time African-American professors. From that point on, she considered herself a teacher who writes. Angelo taught a variety of subjects that reflected her interests, including philosophy, ethics, theology, science, theater, and writing. A Winston-Salem Journal reported that even though she made many friends on campus, she never quite lived down all the criticism from people who thought she was more of a celebrity than an intellect and an overpaid figurehead, which I thought was Mm. interesting. The last course she taught at Wake Forest was actually in 2011, but she was planning on going back to teach another course in late 2014. Her final speaking engagement at the university was in late 2013 and then beginning in the 1990s is when she actually started participating in the lecture circuit in a customized tour bus something that she continued into her 80s so this time you know she's teaching a lot which it's almost funny to like read that people were like oh she's just a celebrity because i definitely view her more as an intellect rather than a celebrity now so it's just funny how that was reversed then that is crazy in 1993 she recited her poem on the pulse of morning at the presidential inauguration of bill clinton becoming the first poet to make an inaugural recitation since robert frost at john f kennedy's inauguration in 1961 Mm. and like 
you know, Robert Frost is a significant poet. This actually resulted in more fame and recognition for her previous works and broadened her appeal across racial, economic, and educational boundaries. And the recording of the poem actually won a Grammy Award, which I thought was super cool. Does she have an EGOT? No, she doesn't, which I was like, dang, because I feel like she could. But she has a Grammy. I think she was just nominated for a Tony. So I don't think she won the Tony. Oh. And I don't know if what she did with TV ended up being like nominated for Emmys or stuff. But she did get a Grammy for her poem, which is cool. And I mean, like she has plenty of other awards. So (laughs) honorary like doctorates. (laughs) And like I said, like the Medal of Freedom from Obama. So like, yeah, (laughs) presidential freedom. Yeah, it's significant. Okay, so that is, I think the most of the significance of her life. Well, hold on. Like as far as career wise (laughs) is like what she did. She continued, like I said, into her 80s speaking, teaching, and doing all of those things. In 2010, she donated her personal papers and career memorabilia to the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in Harlem that consisted of more than 340 boxes of documents that featured her handwritten notes on yellow legal pads for I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, a 1982 telegram from Coretta Scott King, fan mail, personal and professional correspondence from colleagues such as her editor, Robert Loomis, which is cool a note about her personal life so the details of her life obviously are described in her seven autobiographies and in numerous interviews speeches and articles but some things that people point out is that the details kind of tend to be inconsistent critic mary jane lupton has explained that when angelo spoke about her life she did so eloquently but informally and with no time chart in front of her for example she was married at least twice but never clarified the number of times she had been married for fear of sounding frivolous according to her autobiographies and to Gillespie, she actually she married like i mentioned tosh angelos in 1951 and then paul defue in 1974 but then also had her relationship with the guy that you know she went to to egypt in 61 but she never formally married him she held many many jobs including some as a sex worker which she actually described in her second autobiography gathered together in my name and then in a 1995 interview she said i wrote about my experiences because i thought too many people tell young folks i never did anything wrong who ma never i have no skeletons in my closet in fact i have no closet they lie like that and then young people find themselves in situations and they think damn i must be a pretty bad guy my mom or dad never did anything wrong so they can't forgive themselves Mm -hmm. and go on with their lives which I feel is very, very wise and of an interesting way to like think about your life. Because I feel like, I mean, I guess when people try to tell their stories at all, they want to like only include the best parts of it or, you know, the parts that they're most proud of. But I think that she understands that like, if you're going to tell your life, you have to tell all of it. And there's no, there's no point in pretending to like package your life up in this nice, beautiful bow and be like, look at how perfect I've been this whole time and like (laughs) what does that really serve and going back to how like people said like oh it tended to be inconsistent from my understanding it seems that it's almost like the importance was the writing and like you know was it like a piece of literature and making it something that people could resonate with and not so much as like the you know like the perfect timetable of her life and getting the dates right and you know what I mean it's almost like the feelings of her life versus like the actual events maybe which technically isn't that more important 
That's what I think. Yeah. Like mapping out someone's life doesn't really do you a whole lot of service other than like having a fact of everything that happened exactly when it happened. Yeah. And also too, I think that age can change a lot of your life in a way of the way you look back and reflect on it. You know, like if 21 year old Mm -hmm. me was telling the stories of my teenage years, I mean, all the events would be more or less the same, but the way I would tell it would be so, so different. That, yes. you, that you could probably learn something from it from 21 me versus, you know, 25 year old me. But like and I'm sure and 40 year old me even, too. So anyways, yeah. I don't find that a bad thing. Like you said, like where where's the not the point in it? But like there's not as much to learn from that or benefit from. No. Yeah. Like the value of someone's the value more should yes. be more of like the lessons they learned rather than like. The, facts. the exact dates and times that everything happened. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned, she only ended up having one son, Guy, whose birth she described in her first autobiography, one grandson and two great-grandchildren. And according to Gillespie, a large group of friends and extended family, her mother, Vivian Baxter, died in 1991 and her brother, Bailey Johnson Jr., died in 2000 after a series of strokes. Both were very important figures in her life and her books. Reading through the memoir, yeah, it's very clear how much she loved and really looked up to her brother, Bailey, especially when they were together living in Arkansas in her early years. So I wanted to note this cool thing about her writing process. So beginning with I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, Angelo used the same writing ritual for many years. She would wake up early in the morning and check into a hotel room where the staff was instructed to remove any pictures from the walls. She would write on legal pads while lying on the bed with only a bottle of sherry, a deck of cards to play solitaire, Roget's thesaurus, and the Bible, and she would leave by the early afternoon. She would average 10 to 12 pages of written material a day, which she edited down to three or four pages in the evening. She went through this process to enchant herself, as she said in a 1989 interview with the British Broadcasting Corporation. Quote, relive the agony, the anguish, Sturm und Drang. She placed herself back in the time she wrote about, even traumatic experiences such as her rape in Cage Bird, in order to tell the human truth about her life. Angelo stated that she played cards in order to get to that place of enchantment and in order to access her memories more effectively. She said, it may take an hour to get into it, but once I'm in, ha, it's so delicious. She did not find the process cathartic. Rather, she found relief in telling the truth, which I thought is beautiful and I actually remembered like as I was reading and then doing the research for her for this episode I like thought to myself like I do not have the memory that this woman does the details in which she writes about her childhood I was thinking to myself that like there's no way that I could do this for my own childhood like I don't have this many memories so reading her process it was almost like nice to read like oh she had to work to remember all of these mm-hmm. things and and so that I don't know like made me feel good I'm like okay cool they're in there I would just have to do the work if I wanted to yeah I don't know if that makes no sense. that makes sense that'd be so hard part of me is like they're not in there <laughs> yeah well it's a survival it's like, tactic too you yeah. can't remember everything or even want to well it's like you've only got so much brain space how could you possibly access every moment? I don't know. I don't know either. It's a little overwhelming to think about sometimes because I'm sure like our brain, you know, holds it all in there. Somewhere. But, like, but who knows? Yeah. I imagine it in like little locked rooms. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not that I even yeah. had a bad childhood. It's just like I feel like I can't access everything at once. It would be no. too much. 
absolutely but hey maybe lock yourself in a hotel room with no pictures and play solitaire and maybe you'll start remembering your whole life i don't know so she actually died the morning of may 28th of 2014 at the age of 86 she was found by her nurse she had reportedly been in poor health and had canceled recent scheduled appearances but she was actually working on another book that was actually going to be an autobiography about her experiences with national and world leaders which is a shame that you know we weren't able to get that book even though she was you know 86 at the time during her memorial service at wake forest university her son guy johnson stated that despite being in constant pain due to her dancing career and respiratory failure she wrote four books during the last 10 years of her life he said she left this mortal plane with no loss of acuity and no loss and comprehension i really really loved that oprah interview that i watched with her because she talked about aging and at the time that the interview was she was it was 2011 so it was three years before she died she's 83 and Mm -hmm. like she talked about how like being 60 she was like this is the best it's been and then when she was in her 70s she was like this is awesome and then now in her 80s she's like i feel better than ever and it was so refreshing to hear that you know and like i just love that in the last 10 years she wrote four books i don't know i we've talked about this of like the fear of like growing up and being like oh can you only produce art you know for some reason until you're 30 mm-hmm. and then you don't anymore and so I don't know, to hear like all of her success really came. I mean, she was born in the 20s. Her first book didn't come out until 69. Yeah. And the, you know, and then the success that she all had after. And she had just such a beautiful and refreshing like view on aging that it was very, I don't know, it was really inspiring and I loved it. To give you the grand total of all of her work. So (laughs) she wrote a total of seven autobiographies, According to scholar Marie Jane Lupton, Angelo's third autobiography, Swingin' and Swingin' and Gettin' Merry Like Christmas, <laughs> marked the first time a well-known African-American author had written a third volume about her life. Her books stretch over time and plays from Arkansas to Africa and back to the U.S., take place from the beginnings of World War II to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. In her fifth autobiography, All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes, Angelo tells about her return to Ghana, searching for the past of her her tribe she published her seventh autobiography mom and me and mom in 2013 at the age of 85 critics have tended to judge angelo's subsequent biographies in light of the first with cage bird receiving the highest praise but angelo wrote five collections of essay which writer hilton al called her wisdom books and homely strung together with an autobiographical text angelo used the same editor throughout her entire writing career robert loomis an executive editor at random house he He retired in 2011 and has been called one of publishing's Hall of Fame editors. And then Angelo said regarding Loomis, we have a great relationship. We have a relationship that's kind of famous among publishers. To give you the full chronology of her autobiographies, it starts at I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings and then Gather Together in My Name, which is 1948 to 1944 to 1948. Singing and Swinging and Getting Like Christmas, which is the years 1949 through 55. The Heart of a Woman, All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes, A Song Flung Up to Heaven, and then Mom and Me and Mom, which is kind of like an overview that I think like is through the lens of like her relationship with her mother and like what she learned from her mother. And then to finish, I wanted to read some famous quotes that I've heard for many, many years that now I'm like, cool, now I know where they come from and 
who they come from. The famous quote is, nothing will work unless you do. And then this one is, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people forget what you did, but people will Mm -hmm. never forget how you made them feel. And then two other quotes um, is, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. And then what you're supposed to do when you don't like a thing is change it. If you can't change it, change the way you think about it. Don't complain. And that is just some of her amazing quotes and i mean we read the you know the big still i rise poem at the beginning of this but just so much wisdom in this woman's life and so much to learn from and yeah i just i absolutely adore learning about her i also like saw something so random Mm -hmm. there's a barbie doll based on her really (laughs) yeah I did not and know I was looking that. at pictures of her. Yeah, they created a Barbie doll based on Maya Angelou. I think it like it was to honor her history, her impact, and her activism. Uh-huh. Because you know they come out with like collector's editions Barbies. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, so it's one of those. It's only like $35, but it's actually really cool. It's holding a little copy of her book of that's why the cage bird sings uh-huh and they set it up in like this little living room and oh i love it's cute. this it is yeah. cute. <gasps> it's a really cute so it's a part of the inspiring women series by barbie which is really cool because like i didn't know they had this but uh-uh. they have like madam cj walker ida b wells rosa oh. parks Susan B. Anthony, like they have a bunch of these like inspiring women collectors <gasps> edition Barbie dolls. That's cool. really cool. And I feel like that even like further shows her, her influence. Like, yeah, she's a freaking Barbie doll. <laughs> How cool is that? Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What? Yeah. What an amazing woman. I can't wait to just read more. And now that like I've been to a couple bookstores since like I've known for like a month that I was going to do her. And I just, I feel like I'm seeing her now everywhere. You know, it's mm-hmm. like once you like hear something, then you start seeing her and I'm like finding her books of poetry and reading through them and just everything I see from her, I love. So that's one of my favorite things about the podcast, honestly, mm-hmm. is that like once you hear about these people, you notice that they are there. Yeah. Like they're embedded in so many parts of like our culture and our history totally. and our like everything. They're part of the significance of the world. But like until you know who they are, you just don't notice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's been like fun to like see her more. And yeah, go look her up on YouTube because you'll find interviews of all kinds with her and just yeah she just she's just dripping with gold and i love her so go go fall in love with her too if you haven't already from this episode well thank you i love hearing about these important women especially when like i've heard their names so many times and just like don't know the significance of their story so that's really amazing there's so many people that it's like you vaguely hear their names enough, but never like take the time to actually learn who they are and their significance. And so, yeah, it's it's just fun to finally do that. I mean, happy November, everyone. We'll have a bonus episode on the book we read this month coming out this week. And then we get to celebrate the holidays in December. So that will Yay. be fun. It's a fun little Christmassy content. Yeah, we will be back next. Oh, I guess join us on Wednesday for the bonus episode. And then we'll be back next Monday for another artist to feature the headlines remind us daily 
The world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in Bigger Than Ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.